Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but with the NHS in crisis, the only thing that you've been checking is the spelling in your discharge summaries and the cost of flights to New Zealand? Well, your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles and with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, listeners. This is the Journal Spotting Roundup, a podcast bursting at the seams with interesting medical studies, clinical tips, and some very average jokes. Very average. Tonight, we have the wonderful team of myself, you're welcome, Dr. <laughs> Barnaby Hirons, who uh, recently invented the concept of pub jog, although I need to work on the name. We have the most plant-based world-saving of all the journal spotters, Dr. L.J. Smith, and Dr. Jonathan Hudson, who has recently hit the research limelight by publishing in JAMA. Very well done, mate. Um, you can maybe tell us a bit about that later. Maybe that's the one you're covering. I, no, he's shaking his head. Fair enough. LJ and John, would you like to tantalize our listeners' earbuds by telling us what you will be presenting tonight? I will be looking at diet and exercise, but I'm taking some quite niche questions in these topics. So should you advise your heart failure patients to cut out salt? And should we all run home after our flu vaccination? Not That's not an advert for the pub jog. This would just... It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very niche. Okay, I like it. Okay. Um, I'm going to be covering why colonoscopy to screen for colorectal cancer, cancer might not be that useful and why race and ethnicity matters when it comes to cardiac arrest. Interesting. And I will be covering a couple of topics on the extremely rare and exotic disease, well, condition of CBD exacerbations. This means I get a full episode on AF next time. <laughs> and not the deal. <laughs> Definitely not the deal. Journal spotting announcement. Uh, guys, if you are loving the content, <laughs> And if you want easy access to the articles that we're presenting and a whole bunch of other articles that we digest, because my word, do we read a lot of the literature? We do. Um, we have put together a new app. So it is the Journal Club app. It's been made in collaboration with Messly. Um, it's updated pretty much weekly or as fast as me and Bonnie can do it. And it's got loads of pearls of medical wisdom with the latest medical literature summarized for you. Uh, with what we think of it and how useful we think. And there's some really useful stuff and some totally random stuff on that. So go check it out. Brilliant. Thanks. That's a great intro to it, John. Um, Messley, just to introduce them, if you don't know them already, they are a, a great organization who are a bit like, um, actually, one of the guys described themselves as the right move of the locum world. So you fill in all your locum documents, you tell them what you're looking for, and then they reach out and branch out to other all the locum agencies and find a post to you without giving the locum agencies your details. So you're not going to be getting loads of calls from them, that sort of thing. Um, their team built us this web app, which uh, which when you download to your, your phone's homepage, it functions just like a regular app that you might have downloaded from the store. Um, you can find it on journal, journalclub.messily.com. That's journalclub, one word, dot messily. Dot com, or the link will be in the show notes and on our webpage, which is journalspotting.com. Great. And as always, uh, send us your feedback on the show, the content, the app, our jokes, whatever you want, Barney's haircut. We want to hear it. Journalspotting at gmail.com, or you can catch us on Twitter. Um, and whilst you're at it, if you like the show, share with your mates, share it on WhatsApp, tell your family, tell your cat, whoever you want. 
I'm trying to tell my cat now. It just keeps purring at me and I have to keep pushing it away. Um, so if you hear some purring, that's where it's from. I'm sure she's purring at the beautiful sound of my voice and the fascinating topics that we're going to discuss. Can we start? Yeah, let's <laughs> start. Enough about the cat. Let's get on with it. All right. Who's going first? I'm first. Right. Barney, got a very important question for you. Have you been called up for your colorectal cancer screening yet? You absolute bully. <laughs> what, what age is that? Is it is it 65 or something or 70? When when is the um when do people start getting screened for colorectal cancer? I'm pretty certain it's 55. And seeing as your birthday is not that far away. Yeah. Not that far away. Well remembered. Um absolutely. I uh not yet, John, is my no. solid answer. Well, regardless, uh you should probably pay attention to this New England Journal article this month because it's gonna be pretty relevant for a lot of people. Um, so you've probably heard the over 50s make jokes about having cameras up the bum or discuss horrifying scenes of their bowel prep. But how effective is all this bowel cancer screening and what is the best way to do it? That's a great question because it's obviously part of the NHS screening program. So it'd be really interesting to hear about whether that's effective. I mean, I think most places go with very lovely stool test and then a colonoscopy if it's positive. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I've come on to the UK a little bit, but... Um, the study that we're going to look at is more relevant, I think, to sort of globally to countries like the US and actually many, many other countries that use um, colonoscopy really as a really routine way of screening for colorectal cancer. So like many things we do in medicine that allow doctors to make a lot of money on a procedure and insurance companies too, there's not a lot of evidence for colonoscopy and colorectal cancer screening. In fact, most of the evidence that colonoscopy benefits colorectal cancer outcomes comes from observational studies oh there we Long go we, bells. Well, we often, uh, john seems to be doing all the sound effects for this show. <laughs> for the producer sorry <laughs> we love a producer wouldn't we we'd love one um and actually listeners of course if you learned anything from this show we, we cover a lot of observational studies but always with the caveat that they are observational studies and there's you know and often that is not good enough to make a, a huge clinical decision preach barney so here is the Nordic trial to plug this evidence gap. 80,000 individuals across various Nordic countries between 2009 and 2014 were randomized to either usual care, so at the time that was no colonoscopy for colorectal cancer screening, or they were invited to a one-time screening colonoscopy. And they were followed up for a median of 10 years. So loads of people across many countries. Hey, John, just say this This um, actually just sounds like it's really going to, this colonoscopy trial is really going to uh, plug a hole in... You couldn't resist, could you? I can't, can't believe resist. it. I can't believe you lasted this long, I'm actually. Sorry, I'm sorry, carry on, please. <laughs> right. So uh, we all settled down after having a little joke about bums. Yeah, thank you. The headline of the Nordic trial is important because it showed that screening with colonoscopy for colorectal cancer did not reduce the risk of death from colorectal cancer. However, with screening, there was a small and significant reduction in the risk or kind of incidence of colorectal cancer. Okay, that's interesting. So, I mean, overall, it doesn't seem to really made much difference then. No, screening people with a colonoscopy makes no difference to mortality from colorectal cancer. But as always, the devil is slightly in the detail. So the study was performed uh, with what we call an intention to treat analysis. So that means that the data was analyzed based on which group participants, participants were originally randomized to not whether they actually got the colonoscopy. So this is important because actually in the trial, only 42% of the people in the colonoscopy group actually had a colonoscopy. I, they got invited, but only 42% actually had the colonoscopy. 
Now, the authors presented what we call a per-protocol analysis that specifically restricts the analysis to patients that actually had the colonoscopy. And in that, 0.15% in the colonoscopy group and 0.3% in the usual care group uh, died of uh, colorectal cancer. So that's an absolute risk difference, which was calculated 0.15%. That is pretty small, okay? And any keen journal spotters will remember that a per-protocol analysis is pretty much not really valid statistically because it undoes the whole point of randomization, which is to have a totally random group of people. Because if you only analyze the people that had a colonoscopy, you're automatically restricting your analysis to one thing. That's a really important point because I think um, often the trials um, present both, don't they? So it's just really important to know the difference and how it undoes the randomization. I think key here, isn't it? You know, if you, if you offered out a screening to the whole entire population and only half of them turned up to it, then of course that's a real world dilemma, which is you know, so it's mm. not going to help people. But like plain devil's advocate, you could make the argument that if you manage to increase compliance with uh, colonoscopy invitations by some form, you might see a benefit, especially from a population point of view. Um, and do you think the the ten year follow up possibly wasn't big enough to see a different in outcomes, John? Yeah, like definitely, definitely, and all valid points to consider when interpreting the results. This is not like a magic bullet for, um, you know, it doesn't rule out colonoscopy as a screening tool. It just tells us that this trial doesn't support it. But the Nordic, I think, is a landmark trial and the authors should definitely be applauded for conducting it. Here in the UK, uh, the screening program is actually based on fecal immunochemical test or the FIT test. Um, And some combination, I think, of the FIT test and sigmoidoscopy and maybe colonoscopy is probably where screening is moving towards. Um, more trials are in the pipeline to try and establish the best way to screen populations for colorectal cancer. But the Nordic trial certainly raises a lot of questions over whether just a colonoscopy is the answer. And, you know, let's not forget these procedures have harms, all those sorts of things, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and well, yeah, you could argue sort of lots of anxiety, psychological harm as well, that sort of thing. People hate these sorts of things for good reason. They're not nice. Um, but thank you, John. That's really interesting and really, really good to go through that. And you managed to do it without actually doing too many bad bum puns and poo jokes, which is, I mean, if I was doing that, you know, it would have probably been a much, much worse situation. Anyway, let's move swiftly on. That's really useful. Um and on to LJ. So, uh, yeah, do you want to tell us some interesting studies, you know, the latest in diet and exercise from a lifestyle medicine point of view? Absolutely. So I'm trying increasingly to incorporate some elements of lifestyle medicine into my practice. It's got a growing evidence base. There's real potential here to really change lives. And so I've been noticing uh, more and more papers on the effects of diet and exercise. Um, and I've got to say heart failure uh, is not my strongest topic. So I thought I'd really dive into this study in HEART, which was a post-hoc analysis of the TOPCAT trial. So the trial itself was an RCT, a randomized control trial, looking at spironolactone in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and found no benefit. But this was a post-hoc analysis, which took a different angle, looking at the relationship between salt intake and a primary composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization, and sudden cardiac death. And they included 1,713 people with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. LJ, this is a fantastic moment to teach us what the actual recommendations for salt intake currently are. Or is it for people with heart failure or just the general population? Yeah, great question. I'm not sure that anyone's really up on the recommendations, but it's less than two grams a day of salt. 
Um, and that our advice makes sense if we're thinking quite simplistically about salt and fluid. But actually, the evidence supporting this recommendation in people with heart failure is pretty sketchy, surprisingly sketchy, actually. Um, so we know that diets high in salt certainly increase the risk of heart failure. And this is mostly through the effects of hypertension. But the evidence is less robust for those with established and symptomatic heart failure. And actually, there was another trial that was um, also looking at a similar area that came out earlier this year, the sodium HF trial. And that found that reducing sodium intake to less than 1.5 grams a day in patients with established heart failure, NYHA 3 to 4, already on optimal medication, had no impact on clinical outcomes, including hospitalizations and death at one year. So that was a surprise to me. And this TopCat trial analysis is interesting because it looks specifically at the HEFPEF population, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Just to say, LJ, so it's the um, the recommended intake of salt. I think in the UK, is it in, in anybody? Is, that, is it six grams? And I just checked. And I think WHO, um, their advice is you should have less than five grams of salt. So, you know, less than two grams is significant or less than one point is significantly less than what the average person the limit for the average person just to make that clear yeah that's absolutely right thanks for reminding us of those yeah and and hefpef i mean very difficult um phenotype of heart failure to to treat loads of negative trials bar one for sglt2 inhibitors um so really difficult actually to treat hefpef currently at the moment lots of it's sort of managing the other risk factors um, I'd be really curious to know what this study found, LJ. Is there any hope for salt restriction in these patients? So the trial measured salt intake using the cooking salt score. So essentially they asked people how much salt they added to food when cooking at home. And the bottom line was there was no difference in all cause or cardiovascular death based on this salt intake. And actually there was a higher rate of the composite endpoint and of heart failure hospitalization, which was mainly driving that composite endpoint, in those adding no salt to cooking compared to any amount of salt, which surprised me. Um, and subgroup analysis suggested the association of what they determined to be over strict uh, cooking salt restriction and the poor prognosis was more in patients who were less than 70 and of non-white ethnicity. So actually definitely some features there in terms of thinking about renin-angiotensin systems in different ethnicities. Mm, not quite what we expected. Uh, what's, what's your takeaway from the study? I think uh, it's not going to answer what we do about <laughs> heart failure with reserved ejection fraction, but I think it's a really useful cautionary tale. So it seems really common sense to restrict salt, but actually it shows that heart failure is not a simple matter of fluid in and out. And actually there might be some uh, interactions with the neuro hormonal activation, which actually might make heart failure worse. So a higher plasma and renin activity is already known to be an independent predictor of poor prognosis. So if that's activated by very low sodium intake, that might explain the results. And also we haven't really mentioned the effect on um, the kidneys and there was a signal that EGFR was lower in the very, very low salt group. So again, there might be something going on with that, with that um, heart renal axis that's so tricky to manage. So I think overall, Definitely, I'm not going to recommend patients with heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction remove salt from their diet. And really, it just makes me think, you know, this whole very focused um, approach looking at salt restriction is not not only unhelpful for patients, it also robs them of a tasty meal, perhaps. Um, but it's actually a distractor from kind of thinking more holistically about diet advice, which we could do better at in these patients. 
And we all know that a lot of salt in our diet is from ultra processed foods rather than that that's added at home. So I think that was completely missing that aspect in, in, in the discussion. That's really um, interesting. And that's actually really important, isn't it? Because, you know, possibly people weren't adding salt because the food they were eating was already really salty. So um, because they bought it and it's got a load of salt in it. So lots to sort of unpick there, but um, really interesting take home messages. Um, and back to ultra processed food. I mean, this is a really hot topic in medicine in general, but in lifestyle medicine. So um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah. And there's some really interesting uh, recent articles about ultra processed food um, and the risk of colorectal cancer. So thinking about that that previous study and also about maternal consumption and childhood obesity. So loads going on and increasing evidence of all the many harms of ultra processed food. So uh, sadly, we don't have time to discuss those in detail. Um, so I've chosen another study that's maybe slightly more immediately relevant to us and our listeners on exercise and vaccine response. Oh, awesome. Okay, please tell me that excuses I make for not going for a swim pre and post flu jabs are based on evidence and not because of my laziness. Have I got an excuse? I don't think I'm going to be able to help you out there, I'm afraid. It does feel like a cliche that if exercise was a drug, it would be a panacea and we'd prescribe it to everyone, but it does seem to actually be true. So I'm planning to get my COVID booster and flu jab this week. Um, And really my question was from this study, should I exercise just before to really make it count? And should I be asking my patients to do some star jumps? Falls assessment uh, ticked off. Um, (laughs) And it's an interesting question. So several studies have demonstrated an effect of acute exercise on vaccination response in the past, but none have examined if this effect differs between physically active and inactive populations, which this study did look at. Okay, so the question here is whether a single episode of exercise just before your flu vaccination enhances your vaccine response, or whether you have to be also, or whether you also have to be physically active person long term to see an immunological benefit. Is that the idea? That's it. Yeah. So it was a systematic review of meta-analysis in PLOS One. They initially looked at 313 studies, but could only include seven in the final analysis. And these all measured antibody response and physical activity. And the data was from 515 participants in the end. Um, And in the exercise groups, they exercise for anywhere between 15 and 50 minutes, mostly resistance training, actually. Um, and it was generally just before the vaccination, but actually in one study was up to 48 hours before and in one immediately after. So the studies were quite mixed in this in this meta-analysis and all the blood samples were collected at baseline and then four to six weeks later to see um, both uh, seroconversion and ty- vaccine titers. Super. And so should we be lacing up our running shoes before we get the vaccines? What did they find? So overall, physical activity had a positive effect on the H1 immune immune response to influenza vaccination. And the odds ratio was 1.69, so definitely worth having. That was for seroconversion. And there was also benefit from both acute exercise and from being generally physically active on antibody titer levels, so the magnitude of the response. But there was no added benefit of acute exercise if you were inactive. And again, there were some interesting subgroups, but numbers were all quite small. So interestingly, BMI had little to no effect. Um, They did look at whether people who exercised the same arm where they were vaccinated in, uh, whether that made a difference. And they did show a stronger effect of acute exercise, um, both on antibody uh, titer and on seroconversion relative to controls. So it's the same arm. Just to give a a sort of um, weight, do do your bicep curls as you're getting your injection or something. Okay, interesting. Um, 
there was a it was a bit of a shame because they couldn't investigate the antibody response in just the older participants because of the small sample size. And by the time they were doing these subgroup analysis, I, I do think it gets a bit sketchy. But that is a shame because there's there's a real question around whether um, because we know that immunogenic response reduces with aging it might be that that's the very group that might benefit from anything that might boost their vaccine response and they just couldn't answer that question from this trial unfortunately so more work needed i think yeah that's really interesting thank you um so i'm i'm trying to sort of piece together what you're saying um lj do you think is this going to change your practice do you think we should be exercising what do you think so i think uh exercise is good and it's a uh, good sure. for immunity overall yeah um but i don't think there's sufficient evidence here to recommend exercise immediately post flu vaccine for everyone and there was a real gap here because actually the studies they included ended up missing out the age group of age 36 to 65 <laughs> so i don't even know whether to recommend this to myself Okay, so wait, after 65, there was lacking in evidence, and they actually somehow missed out 36 to 65. So there's a few sort of gaps in the evidence there. Um, I mean, that's just pure age discrimination, isn't it? I think it's quite relevant. Yeah, I was going to say, you're probably just just in there, aren't you? (laughs) Going to reveal how close I am to being excluded from the study. Oh, I'm well and truly excluded. Yeah, I'm well out of it. So, I mean, I, I think this is a really interesting study in that what they've tried to do is to look at an interaction between lifestyle and a pharmacological intervention. And I think we need more of that. So um, I think the the premise was good. The way they looked at things were good, but it just came down to numbers. The, the studies were quite low quality and so a lot were excluded. Brilliant. Thank you, Audrey. I think that's really interesting. Um, and possibly something we can, you know, with more evidence, we might be able to might be changing our recommendations as time goes on, I guess. Um, I actually stole a article which you forwarded to me a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm going to cover a couple of really fascinating um, studies in everyone's favorite disease. That's right, John. Everyone's favorite disease, COPD. Um, And we're going to start with, uh, yeah, what LJ forwarded me a little while ago that I stole off her. This is um, a game changer, potentially a game changer, certainly up for debate, from the Cochrane Library. And this is uh, about magnesium, giving magnesium in CFPD exacerbations. So a bit of background here. Magnesium, some people believe it is the elixir of all. They give it in arrhythmias, preeclampsia, cramps, asthma attacks, you name it. The truth is, in all of these conditions, the evidence is a little bit conflicting even if it has become routine practice in many. Yeah, so I think this is really interesting because um, magnesium has a few effects. So if you really get into the nitty gritty, it prevents calcium ion movement into vascular and bronchial smooth muscle cells causing vasodilation and bronchodilation. And it also possibly has anticholinergic and antihistamine effects. And there's even some evidence that it might reduce neutrophilic inflammatory responses. So there's so much that magnesium potentially interacts with. You can see how it's been used for all these different conditions. But as you say, there's already questions around that. But an anti-inflammatory effect um, would definitely be beneficial. Yeah. And as you say, it's all these sort of, it's um, it's not particularly clear and there's no, it really isn't brilliant evidence behind it, but there are all these theories about how it, or, and obviously some evidence about how it could, how it can be used sort of in vitro studies and things. So it's bronchodilation. It's the vitamin D of A&E. Isn't it? <laughs> they love it. Certain, I mean, certain people in A&E like give it Bloody for hell. everything, you know. Um, <laughs> and I kind of want to believe in it for some reason, but, uh, you know, people are either believers or haters. It's interesting. 
But you can imagine it. Look, bronchodilation, antihistamine, anticholinergic, anti-inflammatory. If it did all those things, you could see why it would be like a, a really useful drug in respiratory diseases. Yeah, and we're definitely looking for uh, more useful drugs in respiratory yeah, diseases. Um, there's also evidence from a, uh, 2014 that low magnesium levels were associated with higher rates of repeated admissions in CAPD. So again, there's this theory, but it is theory that maybe normalizing levels could help reduce exacerbation frequency. But that's theory, not evidence based. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and despite all this, despite all this theory and all this evidence and these, what we've been talking about, it's been drilled into me for a very long time. And up to a few weeks ago, I would have been absolutely not um, you, that you do not give IV magnesium to COPD exacerbations. Acute asthma, sure, severe, you know, life-threatening asthma, these sorts of cases, yes, it seems to be beneficial. But, uh, but not in CAPD. And the re- rationale I was given at the time was that, you know, CAPD doesn't tend to have any reversible airway obstruction. So why would you bother? The evidence isn't there. So scrutinizing this fact um, in inverted commas, many trials have looked into it and good old Cochrane have done a meta-analysis. So they included 11 RCTs incorporating 762 patients with an acute exacerbation of COPD. Magnesium was either given as a nebula, (laughs) as a nebula, isn't that a type of cloud? A nebulizer or IV in the studies. And it was mostly- academic for too long. Yeah, sure. Of course. A nebulizer? What? <laughs> Can you give this patient a nebula, please? <laughs> and just wave your hand mystically. Um, and mostly these, these medications, this magnesium was compared to placebo. So we're going to break it down into the different sections. Firstly, the nebula or nebulized magnesium. Um, perhaps my, my, my take home from this is it's perhaps not as useless as I might have expected, which is quite a glowing accolade. Um, there is very low certainty evidence that it might reduce ICU admissions and improve breathlessness without any evidence that affected hospital admission rates or need for NIV. Interestingly, these studies didn't seem to actually report any adverse events, so we don't, we don't know about them. So certainly not high up on my list of medications to give an exacerbation, but if you did end up giving nebulized magnesium to a CAPD patient, you could just about justify it if there were short of breath or something like that. Um, but we wouldn't recommend it. I think you'd also struggle to find it, I've got to say. I don't know okay. any departments that stock nebulized magnesium. Nip over to, you actually just use the, um, the, the vi- I think it's the same as the IV is what I've been told, and nip over to the um, pediatrics where they still do give nebulized magnesium um, mixed in with uh, salbutamol sometimes. Um, apparently it works in children but not in adults. But anyway. We digress. On to IV magnesium. So when they looked at this, compared to, say, placebo, fewer people needed hospital admission after having IV magnesium when they presented with an acute exacerbation of COPD. That had a significant odds ratio of 0.45, with a number needed to treat to achieve some sort of additional benefit of just seven. Now, not only that, IV magnesium significantly reduced the length of hospital stay by a difference of a fairly significant 2.7 days. They did look at adverse events and there were no significant adverse events from medication compared to placebo. Um, and they didn't find any difference in the rate of ICU admissions. Interesting, Barney. So um, this looks pretty big, actually, in reversing what we know. What, what's your interpretation of this? Change your practice, yeah. And I, 
I will get the airway doctor as well to chip in on this. But I thought it was really interesting, mainly because it just it goes get completely against what I had thought and never would have considered IV magnesium and COPD. Um, and now certainly I am considering it and I may well consider using it. Um, so um, I'll, I'll sort of tell you, the Cochrane conclusions were measured and they stated there wasn't enough evidence to change routine practice. And I can see that. And um, I suppose I'll give my opinion first and hear LJ's. But I would I would be tempted to suggest giving IV magnesium in, say, I don't know, a, a CPD exacerbation with a refractory ongoing wheeze and breathless, breathlessness and you've you've you know you're fairly you've got a fairly limited kitchen sink and you've shoved it all in their way you've given all the nebulas you can possibly can um and um they just haven't work worked and yes i think in those sorts of cases you've got not much to lose i probably would try a bit of IV magnesium although the evidence possibly doesn't show that it would work in that area um but perhaps i'm yeah, and perhaps I'm over-interpreting the data a little bit, but it seems like the milder COPD exacerbations had more benefit from IV magnesium. So it didn't really prevent ITU admissions, but it did prevent hospital admission and reduce hospital stay. So, you know, maybe actually in these sort of milder cases where they just need a bit more bronchodilation before they tip over the edge, um, that's where the benefit may lie. What do you think, LG? So I really want to be a believer. I really do. I really want something new. I really want to make a difference to um, length of stay um, and important outcomes to patients. I, I think mainly I just have questions. So I did look through to see to see the studies that they included to try and get a sense of who these patients were and how they had um, had a confirmed diagnosis of COPD. They were mainly post bronchodilator um uh, diagnoses, but not all. Some of it was just clinical. And there was no mention of things like eosinophil levels. So I just, I'm not sure that these are a pure cohort of CAPD patients. That's my main question, really. But I do think anything that has the potential to uh, reduce length of stay and improve outcomes is really worth pursuing. And I think this Cochrane review really gives us a reason to move forward to do some more interventional trials that have just a tighter um, a more detailed look at who who the group is that that might benefit. Yeah, I think that's that's um, very measured compared to my. Yeah, I think we should just give it and see what happens. Actually, listeners, we should probably need better better and more evidence. Um, as you say, with a sort of a tighter control on which patients are going to benefit from it. Thank you, Algie. That's brilliant. I would say though, as you say, you know, there's very little downside. So in some with refractory wheeze, yeah, I'd say definitely check it out then. So <laughs> I will put that out there. <laughs> brilliant. Go for it. She felt bold. She felt suddenly spurred on to say, brilliant. Okay. Um, we'll move on. We'll move away from magnesium and we're going to continue on the uh, COPD exacerbation spectrum. So um, perhaps like me, you are always torn by this idea of antibiotic stewardship and there's this recommendation that most COPD exacerbations require antibiotics, especially if they have raised inflammatory markers or some sort of new mucky sputum. And we seem to be plugging antibiotics at these people, even though we're really not sure that they have a bacterial infection. I am totally torn by this. It's such a difficult one. Um, and mucky sputum is so interesting. I mean, obviously, just intrinsically. I don't know why my patients always look at me aghast when I ask them to describe it in detail. Um, Show me pictures, please. What colour? Oh, Give me more. Oh, you bought it in the tissue from three days ago. That's wonderful. Well done. 
Uh, exactly. So there is actually evidence that purulent sputum, which is normally defined as a colour change, so green or yellow, is associated with a much higher chance of growing bacteria than just mucoid sputum, which is just sort of more thick. Um, and there's some evidence that this was maybe more useful than CRP for differentiating bacterial infections versus not. So there is something to go on here with this idea of purulent phlegm. I'll put the links for that in the in the show notes as well, but it's quite an interesting study looking at this, looking at sputum, if you're interested in this. And some pictures. And some pictures. Just pictures of my sputum, anybody's sputum. I'll just put them up. Anyway, I won't. Um, um, so that is why the uh, it is still in the COPD you know, guidelines, the gold guidelines, to give antibiotics if there is a change um, to purulent sputum, which is why we often seem to be giving tons of antibiotics. The study I'm going to present is, was published in the Therapeutic Advances in Respiratory Disease, and it basically it looked at levofloxacin as, a, as an antibiotic, and it compared two to seven days of levofloxacin. So it was based in Tunisia, which is why they're using levofloxacin. We wouldn't tend to use it directly for in COPD exacerbations. Um, and they randomized 310 patients with acute exacerbation of COPD and split them into two groups. All other factors, such as the amount of steroid given, remained equal. Group comparison was equal in terms of things like demographics and how sick the patients were. And notably, median CRP for group, both groups was between 40 to 50, so about equal. Overall, cure rates from the exacerbation were equal. There's no significant difference. The need for additional antibiotics after the course was actually very low across the board, somewhere between 1% and 3%, so very low. ICU and death rates were equal. And they managed to get sputum cultures in nearly 60% of participants, which is actually pretty impressive by itself. And the range of pathogens were actually very similar between groups. So there isn't some sort of microbiology difference. Mm. Did they manage to piece together which patients actually benefited most from any sort of antibiotic treatment? Yeah, it's difficult. There was um, there was a subgroup analysis, and this is what I was particularly interested in, which looked at patients with a CRP greater than 50 and again, even with comparing the patients with a higher or lower CRP, there was no difference between the groups, okay? So it seems, but that's often we, what we might go off and GPs might go off, you know, if your CRP, CRP is raised, give them antibiotics, if it's not, don't, or, but actually it's not looking at do or don't, it's looking at a long or short course. And there was no difference. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't, we don't know about sputum purulence um, from this study, they didn't talk about it. So do you think this might catch on to help reduce the antibiotic burden in COPD patients? Yes and no. You know, we like to be balanced in journal spotting, don't we? Um, yes, it shows that even if there is a, some sort of reasonable evidence of infection, which we would consider reasonable, such as a CRP more than 50, a short course of antibiotic appears just as good as a longer course when using levofloxacin. So it is, it is specific and we can't necessarily generalize that to all antibiotics, but using levofloxacin, yes, a short course appears as good as a longer course. Um, it would have been really interesting to see have a group in the study on placebo as well. Um, maybe hard to get ethics for this um, because is it actually that the patients, some of the patients, didn't even need antibiotics at all? I think obviously a significant proportion didn't need any, and that would have been really interesting to see. But maybe a bit more of a difficult study to um, to get permission for. Well. Either way, Bonnie, whether we go for the balanced approach or the throw the kitchen sink and some levofloxin at them, it's probably going to push us in the right direction to support the use of fewer antibiotics in a time when AMR is sweeping the globe. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I thought it's relevant and useful. And um, hopefully we we'll, we'll give us some impetus to start cutting down the antibiotics that we're giving these patients. 
I definitely think we need to be better at phenotyping exacerbations. It's just so hard. So much of it is based yeah. on patient description of their symptoms and their phlegm and what's going on and their symptoms often vary. So I think it's tough, but I do think things like this really help us to think we can definitely treat less, which also has the benefit of fewer side effects and other adverse outcomes. So really helpful um, adding to the literature. Great. Mm, thanks, Barney. Thanks for that little COPD masterclass. Always love a bit of <laughs> COPD. Um, don't, don't, even, don't even try. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> You're up next, Joel. What have, you, what have you got for us? Well, now, last but definitely not least, I think, a study about why race and ethnicity matter when it comes to surviving an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So this is a very recent study published in the New England Journal, which sought to investigate why people of ethnic minorities in the USA have worse outcomes and survival of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, which is a very, very sad fact. So they analyzed a very large registry of hundreds of thousands of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests that occurred across the USA. And they wanted to look at basically um, what proportion of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests receive bystander CPR and whether this differed by the ethnicity of the victim, so the person that had a cardiac arrest, okay? So what type of cardiac arrest did they look at? Well, it's worth mentioning that they excluded cardiac arrests that were unwitnessed, that were pediatric, that were attended by healthcare professionals, or that occurred in healthcare facilities, okay? So this is out-of-hospital cardiac arrest um, with bystander CPR in the USA, and there were hundreds of thousands of them. I think it was about 150,000 cardiac arrests in a registry. And they, the variable they looked at, as I said, was, was race and ethnicity. And the, the three groups they looked at were white persons and black persons and Hispanic persons. So black and Hispanic persons were less likely than white persons to receive bystander CPR, both at home and in public locations. So at home, 38% of black and Hispanic persons received CPR while 47% of white persons did. And in public locations, 45% of black and Hispanic persons received CPR, while 60% of white persons received bystander CPR. Okay. Black and Hispanic persons were also less likely to get CPR, regardless of if the neighborhood where the arrest took place was predominantly white, predominantly black or Hispanic, or deemed to be a racially integrated neighborhood. So it, it wasn't determined, the likelihood of bystander CPR was not necessarily determined by where the um, cardiac arrest took place. Finally, black or Hispanic persons were significantly less likely, as we know from previous data, to survive a witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. That's a really fascinating um, study, John, and actually it picks apart a few of the things as, you, as you're yeah, telling us it's sort of there's a few questions i had like oh you know well maybe it's because of this and this but actually they looked at a whole bunch of things in there and that's still pretty pretty awful and pretty shocking um did they did the authors suggest possible reasons apart from well obvious of structural racism i guess but were there yeah, other reasons I, I suppose um i was reading this and i was thinking to myself well the authors are just describing the data so any any suggestions of reasons are really sort of a conjecture or then you know that that's not the data is just telling us what happens it's not necessarily telling us the reasons but certainly some of them that are suggested and and you can see some of these making sense are um, related to lack of cpr training in black or hispanic communities you know access to this level of training infrastructures to provide the training um, 
training being provided in a way that is culturally appropriate to specific communities. So, you know, it being in the right language or in, you know, having the right representation or having the right local leaders to engage people on CPR training, you can see why, I mean, there's almost, I mean, I can see even in the UK, you know, there's definitely a racial bias towards CPR training with, you know, being conducted by a lot of white people. And um, so there's that aspect to it. And then, as you say, if, if there is also reduced um, bystander CPR for ethnic minorities in public locations, well, you know, is there an implicit or explicit bias in laypersons and their response to out-of-hospital cardiac arrests? And, um, you know, that, that certainly is something that you could hypothesize from, from the data. So anyone interested in reading further, I, I really would recommend checking out the discussion of the article. I'd also recommend checking out the accompanying editorial in the New England Journal. Um, but it's definitely a call to arms for the need for, for really a, a multifaceted public health response to reduce the racial and ethnic differences in the, um, you know, in, in the ability to deliver bystander CPR, but, but also to improve survival outcomes um, for uh, ethnic minorities in, in, you know, predominantly white um, countries to, to survive out of hospital cardiac arrest. So, yeah, pretty, pretty good study, I thought. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. So I think what this adds is that it's not just the sort of rate of conditions that might cause a cardiac arrest. It's not just access to healthcare to, to manage those conditions. The, the health inequalities um, follows right through to the point at which someone's having a cardiac arrest and there's an inequality there in terms of access to care. So this is such an important study to really reveal that. So thanks very much. Lovely. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. That was, that was um, yeah, interesting. Sober, sobering, isn't it? Um, actually, and, and whenever we hear, get brought down to earth and reminded of the health inequalities, I think it's also worth saying it was in the USA, but I think it would be very similar if it was in the UK, very mm. similar, if not sort of the same sort of outcomes, is my impression, although mm. we didn't have that data and it would be useful to see it. All right, folks. Well, brilliant. We've got through the articles. The listeners, if you're still with us, congratulations. Um, what we're going to do is have a quick whip round, guys. Um, what are your top take-home points from tonight's show what might change your practice um pray tell who'd like to go first i'll go first i think um i'd been meaning to read up about salts uh intake and heart failure so thank you lj for covering that curriculum item for me uh i think what i really liked about the studies there's a study you covered lj was actually the uncertainty that it reveals around a recommendation that we routinely give to people and the lack of data around it and I really like the uncertainty. So thanks for thanks for bringing that. Even though it's not a positive trial, and we can't go around saying you know don't don't add more salt to your meals, but I think it's a very useful negative study. Yeah, I think actually negative studies often tell us a lot and undo some kind of practice that's just sort of you know assumed to be right. So I think they can be really helpful. So it's great to see them. Um, I am definitely gonna continue my skepticism about screening programs um you know when they work they're brilliant the the concept is so great but so often they're oversold and uh, i think that's another example of that in terms of the colonoscopy study so more work needed on really defining who should be having colonoscopies and and just more questions about screening in general that was great um and the other one obviously i'm going to be thinking a lot about magnesium and copd oh we all I think about all? that anyway but lots to lots for us to think about there 
I think I've run out, we've run out of studies almost. I, <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to say, well, I'm intrigued by, I'm, I find it's really interesting, this idea of mixing up, um, looking at lifestyle medicine. And the more I look into it, the more interested I am and seeing how even doing exercise can, you know, can affect, it's not clear, but it seems to affect your immunological response. And um, I find it fascinating delving into these things. So I think that's really interesting. I'm just I'm looking for more and we'll, we'll keep you updated, listeners. Um, and also certainly, yeah, if, if they call, when they call me up for that colonoscopy, John, I'm going to say, well, you know what? A couple of years a few, Quite a lot of years ago, my, my pal John <laughs> said <laughs> it wasn't very useful. So I'll, uh, I'd like to get a bit more information about it. Um, but overall, guys, I think we've covered a hell of a lot of uh, really yeah. good stuff, really, really interesting articles. And I'm sure our listeners will think the same. You've been listening to Journal Spotting. You can find more information about today's show on our website, journalspotting.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? If you have any questions or feedback, then get in touch. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.